0: I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. All opinions and discussions on the podcast are purely individual experience, so please consult a doctor or medical professional for more information. Welcome to the Shake It Up show, a podcast in partnership with Shake It Up Australia Foundation for Parkinson's Research, where we speak to people whose lives have been impacted by Parkinson's disease and hear their stories. My name is Amy Louise Ruffle. I'm an actor, comedian, podcaster, and most importantly, a proud Shake It Up Australia ambassador in support of my dad who lives with Parkinson's. My guest today is Dr. Nicholas Samko,
1: who is a senior research fellow at the Brain and Mind Centre at Sydney University, currently working on a research project that Shake It Up has provided funding for. Now, normally if I had someone on like this, I would try and give a little uh, preamble into what the research project is. But reading the title of this project, there was already too many words that I couldn't pronounce, so I'm going to leave it to the expert. Nick, thanks for joining me today.
2: Not a problem, Amy. Thank you very much for having me on your uh, podcast.
1: Oh, it's an absolute uh, treat for us. But I think before we get into what this specific project is, I would love to know how you got into research as a as a career. Is this something that you've always been interested in?
2: So I've been doing this job, gee, must be for about 20 years now. I tell everyone it's the only job I've ever had. And people often ask me, what would I do if I was not doing this job? And I don't really ever have an answer. Uh, so... I never kind of set out in life to be a research scientist. I kind of modelled my way into it, going to university, not knowing what I wanted to do. Managed to get myself a job in Sydney. So I grew up in Adelaide. I got flown over in my uh, early, early, very early 20s or 19 or something, flown over to the Big Smoke in Sydney and uh, offered a job at the Garvin Institute. And uh, decided that I really liked uh, medical research. I had no idea that it was something that you could do for a career. And I had no idea that there were kind of all big research institutes dedicated to trying to, you know, better human health. I kind of thought research was what old university professors kind of did in their spare time and these rundown labs. But uh, there's a whole big industry and big dollar business out there, and it's fun to be a part of. And um yeah I've kind of never looked back
1: well we're glad that you I guess fell into this career because you're certainly making a lot of incredible progress in the Parkinson's field so when you first landed like you said in the big smoke in Sydney were you working in the I guess brain and mind space or has that some is that been something that you found your way to
2: so I found my way to that I often get asked uh, why do I work on Parkinson's because a lot of people do have family history or connections to what they work on. But fortunately, somewhat for me, that's not the case. Uh, I actually started working on diabetes research. And um, I ended up going to Scotland and my new boss in Scotland asked me what I wanted to, to do. And I said, I don't want to keep doing what I've been doing. It's time for something new. And at the time, he had just been given funding from a major pharmaceutical company, uh, Smith Klein. They were interested in a brand new gene that had just been identified that increased the risk of people getting Parkinson's disease. So I was one of the first people in the world to work on this gene. It goes by the name of Lurk 2 or leucine-rich repeat kinase 2. Um, and yeah, it, it was quite a successful time. We managed to make a lot of reagents so we could measure this enzyme in people. We were able to make the first drugs and drugs now for lrrk 2 are currently in phase two clinical trials, big trials around the world. So um, we're hoping there will be the first drugs specifically for people with a genetic predisposition to Parkinson's if they work.
1: Well, I mean, that must be phenomenal to have those discoveries and then see it go through the trial phases and getting out to actually potentially helping people. What a What a marvellous journey to be a part of.
2: It is fun because as a basic scientist, you know we live in a world of laboratories and studying cells or a kind of little brains in a dish kind of thing so to see our research actually go places and potentially even benefit people is kind of the pinnacle of our career
1: absolutely so that one that you worked on in Scotland if that does get approved how how is that helping in the parkinson's process
2: yeah so people with lrrk2 mutations are quite rare so I think maybe 1% of all people with Parkinson's disease might carry a mutation in this risk gene. And currently the drugs are being trialed in those particular patients, kind of a precision medicine approach. Uh, but certainly there's more research underway if it works for them than could it be more broadly applied to other genetic forms of Parkinson's and either two forms of Parkinson's that are not genetic? It's hard to know. More and more, we think about there's probably Parkinson's subtypes and there might not be one cure for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of our research is based on. And that's what our funded project is on as well. It's kind of um, thinking about how can we stratify and determine which drugs might work for which people.
1: Okay, well, you've done my job for me and given me a perfect segue into this current research project. So tell me about what you're working on, because like I said, there was a bunch of words that I'm not even going to try and pronounce and understand, but I'll let you do that now.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I mentioned about the leucine repeat kinase 2, but this is now a second enzyme. It's called glucocerebrosidase, often abbreviated to GKs sometimes to GPA. Um, so that might cover some of the words in the title. <laughs> but uh, so this is another genetic risk factor. It's actually more common than the LERC2 mutation. Um, and so that's one we've been starting to work on after, after our success in the LERC2 is turning our attention to different uh, mutations, different proteins, different enzymes. How can we measure them? How can we detect them in people? mm mm-hmm. uh, And how can we use them as this term called biomarkers? So you may be familiar with this term. It's about uh, trying to make blood tests so we can diagnose Parkinson's earlier or trying to diagnose it more um, accurately. And a lot of our work is looking for biomarkers of what we call disease progression. So, Amy, I'm not sure how much you know, but if you try to run a clinical trial for Parkinson's, Basically, you come in as a participant and you get put through a whole bunch of, of clinical tests. Uh, and then at the end of the trial, you get put through the clinical tests again. And um, the doctors kind of make a decision as to whether you looked like you performed better or not yeah. on the tests. And, you know, there's merit to that approach. But a lot of people are wanting to have a what we call an objective test. Is there actually something we can scientifically measure that demonstrates apart from someone's opinion um, that someone has got better on a clinical trial or not. Uh, So that's kind of a long introduction to this project and feel free to stop me if I'm talking too much, Uh, but we, uh, we kind of, um, we didn't invent this test, but we kind of modernized it to work with, with blood samples. Um, So in this project now we're doing what we call a longitudinal validation. So, we kind of want to know if we're going to use this GKs as a biomarker, um, how stable is it in people? Does it change over time with people when they have Parkinson's? Does it get worse when they get worse? Uh, you know, if if it's all up and down and all over the place and changes up and down 20 fold throughout a day, then it's not a good biomarker. Right. So. Yeah. The first parts were kind of developing the test and having it all working. And then we do what we do, these called cross-sectional studies where we look in a patient cohort um, and we can see that people with Parkinson's in general have lower levels in their blood of this GBA or GKs enzyme. And now we want to track it over time.
1: So would one, and I would be simplifying many of the benefits of something like this, but would one potential benefit be that diagnosis could come from something like that because we hear often on this podcast about people really struggling to get that diagnosis because like you said it's often just um it's not an objective thing it's looking at symptoms like that so you could potentially be able to do a blood test and have that really tangible evidence that there is um a likelihood of Parkinson's
2: yeah that's part of the plan blood tests for diagnosis trying to do it earlier Uh, not exactly part of this funded project, but we want to put this test into example, patients with REM sleep behavior disorder, who are a group of people that are also highly at risk of getting Parkinson's, but they don't have it yet. Okay. So, you know, the thought is that by the time you get clinically diagnosed, you may have had it for 10 years, you may have had it for 15, you may have had it for 20. We don't really know when it starts, Mm -hmm. but the earlier we find it, the better it will probably be if we want to try and stop, you know, neurodegeneration from occurring. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, and then those other couple of aspects I talked about trying to, because not everyone with Parkinson's has low levels of this enzyme in their blood, so it's kind of a, what we would call a stratification or selection you know, maybe the people that have low level because there's uh, drugs for this enzyme also now going through early phase clinical trials. And it's all about which patient populations do we test these things in? Uh, And, you know, our test, for example, might be able to select out people that have low levels of this enzyme that then can go on to the therapies which are designed to increase the levels of this enzyme. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So that's a stratification biomarker. And yeah, as I mentioned, seeing how it might predict the course of Parkinson's. Um, If you come in and you have low levels of GK's enzyme activity, mm, are you going to get worse or quicker progression on any of the number of clinical symptoms that can occur um, Mm -hmm. during Parkinson's?
1: Okay, well, it sounds like it's an incredibly important and meaningful study. Whereabouts in the research are you at this point in time?
2: So we're doing this... uh, As part of uh, what we call the Australian Parkinson's Mission clinical trials, which are running here in Australia, and we will run this test funded by the Shake It Up at the end of those trials. Um, The recruitment for the first trial has finished, and we are now just waiting for those last few people to complete the trial. Then we will have all of our samples banked because we want to run them all side by side at the end of the clinical trial. Uh so I would expect that would occur over the next 6 months and then for the 6 months after that is when we will be running the the samples.
1: Okay. Yeah, cuz it's a long process, isn't it?
2: It is a long process. People often um well, I appreciate the audience of this podcast and uh I appreciate the patience that a lot of people have because it does take a long time. Even a clinical trial of a new drug can take, you know, 10 years or something. Because we have to be right. We can't uh, poison people and make them worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, it does take time. Um, and yeah, I, I most people I think are aware of that. And uh, I do get a lot of nice messages from people, for example, saying, you know, Nick, I understand that uh, maybe you not might not be able to help me, but if you could help my, my children and my grandchildren, then, you know, please sign me up and let me know what I can do.
1: Yeah, I, that's echoing the words of my dad, any research that he's a part of. He's like, I know I won't necessarily be the benefactor of the results here, but if it can stop someone in the future or help someone in the future, then you know you're doing um, a really great thing.
2: Yeah, it's time and it's perseverance. And you kind of have to be a bit of a, a martyr to like this job because uh, most things we try don't work. And you have to overcome that and keep uh, waiting for the day that something does work Um
1: yeah, it's trial and error on the grander scale, isn't it? So for you to have that determination and perseverance that one of these things that, that you throw at the wall will work, uh, it's, it's, it's tough.
2: I like to solve puzzles and I don't like to be beaten. So, uh...
1: <laughs> well, then you're in the right job because there's certainly a lot of puzzles, isn't there? So what do you hope to see, I guess, for the future of Parkinson's research? Where do you think it's going? I don't know if these are questions that you can answer, but obviously everyone wants a cure. So aside from that, like, what are the things that people are looking into at the moment?
2: I mean, I think the biomarkers is a big aspect and there's a lot of research and funding efforts going into that at the moment, trying to get those earlier and more accurate diagnosis. And if you follow kind of you know, the Shake It Up newsletters or the Fox, M.J. Fox Foundation, you'll see that there's been progress in that area with the what they call the alpha-synuclein seeding amplification assays. Um, so I think that's quite an exciting time. Certainly now we're starting to see the benefit of genetic discoveries. So maybe 10, 15 years ago, people didn't really think that much that genetics was involved in Parkinson's, and then it started to become clear that it was But every time people discovered a new gene, no one knew what it did. But now we're starting to understand what they do. And so those biological pathways and those genes um, are now really becoming bona fide therapeutic targets and there's early clinical trials. So it's kind of an exciting time. It's a more hopeful time than I think previously. The big question will still be, you know, is there one Parkinson's or are there many? And uh, how do we determine who responds to which kind of therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be, and That's kind of a, a research area at the moment, subtyping of Parkinson's.
1: Which it feels like just from, again, like very, I guess, ignorant position just from the conversations and lived experience of it. It's such a varied disease. People have really different types and versions of Parkinson's, so it stands to reason that, yeah, maybe they stem from the same family, but they there's lots of different little ones under that big umbrella.
2: That's exactly right the word we use for it in fancy science language is, uh, heterogeneous. So, you know, you don't know. And I could imagine how hard it must be going to a doctor and finding out you have Parkinson's and it's like, well, what are you going to do for me? And the answer is a bit like, well, we don't know. We have to wait for things to happen and then we react. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that's kind of what we do with our biomarkers. Uh, I, Quite interested, of course, in the world of machine learning and artificial intelligence and these kinds of things. And as we build up data sets of following people over time, you can kind of look back at the early data you collect on people and try and build models to predict the different kind of outcomes or so, I think that'll be a a way of the future as well as, you know, leveraging artificial intelligence to understand these enormous amounts of things that we can measure in people now, but trying to understand what are the important things or what are the patterns that -hmm. occur.
1: Well, I guess artificial intelligence isn't going anywhere. And in a lot of ways, it feels very scary. But if we we can use it for good and uh, take the advantages of it for something like that, then it sounds pretty fabulous.
2: You know, I agree. I have to learn how to use it. Otherwise, it will replace me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah it's true <laughs> very true and a bit like I guess you were saying people going into a doctor and not really knowing what to do for their Parkinson's and how to treat it it's like what you do in the lab it's trial and error and so you just got to try a bunch of different therapies and things like that and find the version that suits your Parkinson's the best
2: yeah and I must say I, I kind of I'm quite happy to be a scientist and not a medical doctor because we can really push the limits in if our experiments you know, if we kill all our brain cells in a dish, it's not such a big deal. Whereas obviously the patients, you have to be a lot more careful.
1: (laughs) Well, yes, I'm glad to hear that we're a lot more careful with our (laughs) patients. That is good news. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for giving us an update on the study and can't wait to hear... Um, how things go six to 12 months uh, down the track when you're a bit further through the study. But from all of us in the Parkinson's community, thank you for your persistence and your work on things like this because it is making a difference and going to help so many people.
2: Not a problem. Thank you so much. And of course, you know, we can't do it without the participants who are donating their, their bio samples and we can't do it without the, the funds that uh, people are fundraising and, and, you know, the support of Shake It Up has been instrumental. Not only for our GPA research, but our Lurk2 research before. Uh, And yeah, very much hope it continues.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Shake It Up Australia funds groundbreaking Australian research that aims to slow, stop, and cure Parkinson's disease. And they need your help. To support Shake It Up's vision of a world without Parkinson's, head to shakeitup.org.au forward slash podcast. Together, we can find a cure.